This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club. I'm Megan O'Rourke, Slate's culture critic. Joining me today are Stephen Metcalf, Slate's critic at large, and Katie Royfe, a Slate contributor and NYU professor. Today we're discussing Joseph O'Neill's Netherland, a story about a couple whose marriage deteriorates in the aftermath of 9-11. When 9-11 happens, they are living in downtown Manhattan. They have emigrated from England, where Hans van der Broek, who is a Dutch-born equities analyst, and and Rachel, his wife, have met. And she's a corporate lawyer, yeah. right? And they, they come to America, and they're raising um, their son, and 9-11 takes place. And the book is kind of a fantas- uh, sort of a fantasia, weird, desolate, strange, bleak investigation of those years and months after 9-11 when the whole world began to look slightly alien, and, and in their case, their marriage began to look slightly alien to themselves. And Rachel ends up departing to, to England, leaving Hans alone. So it's really the story of Hans's life alone in the United States. And just to start us off, I wanted to talk about, you know, is there a way in which this is an, a post-9-11 novel? Is that even a useful category to have? In the um, New York Times book review, Dwight Garner noted that, in a way, all novels are post-9-11 novels right now. But just to throw that question out there. Well, I think... In a way, the category is somewhat useless, as as um, Dwight points out. But I also think this is the first novel I've read, and we've talked about Emperor's Children in this book club, where um, at least some of us felt like the end was tacked on, the 9-11 part was a little artificial and forced. Here is, this is the first novel where I really felt his use of 9-11 and his way of integrating the city and the mood of the city was perfectly entwined with the mood of the declining marriage. And that he uses this larger world collapse to reflect in this kind of incredibly graceful way the psychological reality of the characters. Yeah, I mean, I would also say that that I, I think Dwight was being clever and in being clever, he sort of emptied out this the category of any meaning, but I, I think we can reinfuse it with some meaning. I think I think this is 
very self-consciously a post-9-11 novel in a way that other novels wouldn't be. It's not precious in the least. I think we can all come out and say this is a masterful book. I mean, it, the quality of it is just so above and beyond what you're typically sent to review or, or read. And so in that sense, it's just very emphatically a post-9-11 novel. The entwinement, I agree, of, of the mood and the theme of 9-11 with the decay of the marriage is very definite and it's deftly and beautifully done. There's it's sort nothing, of natural, nothing unlike schemat- in, in the Emperor's completely Children. Natural. There's nothing, nothing tacked on, nothing schematic about it at all. My sense of a lot of kind of quote-unquote 9-11 novels for a while was that I, I just felt like like month after month I was getting to review novels by young men who wanted to write <laughs> a lad book, get-rich-quick lad book about their carefree days leading up to 9-11, which was then cathartic and taught them that they were idiots and that the 90s were frivolous. And and finally, en- enough time has elapsed for talented writers to have ruminated and produced thoughtful books and also to, to produce books that are about life after 9-11 as opposed to the idiocy of and frivolity of life leading up to 9-11. So in that sense, I think emphatically, yes, this is a 9-11 novel. But I think we should say also it's so much more than a novel. I mean, you know, there's no single descriptor that can be attached to a book of this richness and depth. And so that's, a, I think, Megan, you would agree, this is like a beginning point for a conversation about the book that really expands into enormous territories of, of the imagination. Absolutely. I mean, I think what Katie said is completely true, that the 9-11 is completely interfused with the reality, the psychological reality of this marriage and its deterioration and, and Hans's sense of loneliness walking through the kind of emptied out streets of New York. By the same token, I think the marriage becomes kind of a reflection of 9-11, too. It's, it's, as you say, it's all kind of talked together. But yes, this is a novel that goes way beyond 9-11 as a category, even if it is in some ways a 9-11 novel. And one thing I wanted to talk about is what the predecessors are for this book. I was trying to think as I was reading it, you know, who is this writer like? Because there's a way in which I start to think, okay, I get a little bit of the moviegoer by Walker Percy, a little bit of the sports writer. I think Desperate Characters, Paula Fox, which is a sort of another mood novel about the city I'm going to speak for everyone in our audience who doesn't know who that is and what that book is. I hate to announce my ignorance so openly, Uh, but tell me, I'm curious. Desperate Characters is a great book by the writer Paula Fox about Brooklyn and about a marriage collapsing and the sort of late Late 70s 70s. New York um, atmosphere. And so it's it's and it's an incredibly beautiful book and Mm -hmm. brilliant book, but it is a book in which the city is used almost as a as a character. sort of as a character, yeah. and also as a oh, way absolutely. of reflecting the atmosphere of collapse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, so it's uh, like that. Uh, yeah. Can I pick up on something here, which Please. is that I, it seems to me the two women in the audience here are are, <laughs> are construing this as a uh, on the panel are constru- the two women on the panel are construing this as a marriage book, uh-huh. and and I'm the putative man oh, oh, um, who I, I construe. No, 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 I know, I know, I know. But, but, it's an but your point book. of entry, your point of entry after nine eleven was the was the collapse right. of the marriage. But we right. should say it's also a sports book in an odd way. Right. It's about right. it's right. about the viability of cricket as an American sport right. because as his his wife leaves for the UK with their young son, leaving him right. in the Chelsea Hotel. Their Tribeca apartment is covered in 9-11 asbestos mm-hmm. dust. Right. They've had to vacate it. He lives in the Chelsea. I should say that there are set pieces that take <laughs> place in the Chelsea Hotel that are reminiscent of Bellows Seize the Day. They're that good. They're incredibly, they're just beautifully presented. Um, and even though they're not entirely organic to the novel, I mean, they, they, they establish that mood of sort of deracination and weird desolation and these odd mm-hmm. people thrown together. I've never once entered the Chelsea Hotel, and now I feel like I don't have to. <laughs> um, but it's it's in the absence of his wife, he creates a friendship, this very odd friendship with a Trinidadian immigrant named 
and I'll mispronounce the name, Chuck Ramkasun, Ramkasun, Ramkasun right? Yeah. Whose dream it is to establish, or, or in Chuck's telling, reestablish cricket as a kind of archetypal American sport. Interestingly, we should also say that 9-11 doesn't happen in the course of the book. There's no direct invocation of 9-11 in the book. Exactly. Um, but it's clearly, it's, it's, it's settled. It's part of upon, his artfulness. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's settled over every page of the book like that, mm-hmm. asbestos dust in their apartment. I mean, it's just pervasive. But we should say that the book begins, you know how the book ends when the book begins, right? This is not a spoiler. Right at the beginning of the book, you're told that Chuck is murdered and that the marriage is successful, that Cricket doesn't. It's a bad transplant, like it's like a bad kidney transplant. C- cricket can't make it in the United States. Right. Is sort of the asser- uh, is the uh, uh, founding assertion of the book, the opening assertion of the book, and the marriage survives. Then you kind of go back and and you backfill and backfill and backfill right. with this wonderful lush sort of Proustian uh, reverie. And there is some suspense though about how, in fact, the one thing we should say about the book too is what you're saying, which is. It begins in a present and moves back. It has this kind of beautiful associative movement of circling. It reminded me of skaters yes. doing loops or something. Over you know? and over. Over and yes. over, circling what? around, circling back, which reminded me of Sebald a little bit. Oh, interesting. And I yeah. think does kind of, as you say, it's not a marriage book. It's a marriage about a kind of existential about existential questions in some ways. It's also, I think, a post-colonial book, although mm-hmm. I hesitate to put such a kind of big, dreary word on it because um, it's not in any ways academic, which is part of its genius. Yeah. But, you, you feel as um, though he might have read Imagined Communities. Absolutely. But you also feel right. as though he might right. never have read. I right. mean, right. There's the, 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 right. the presence of the idea is so And that's artfully, one of the things I think is so, so wonderful about the book is the way that the fiction, it's a very intelligent book with all these kinds of ideas and investigations in it about 9-11, about identity, about post-colonialism, about England versus America. I mean, it starts also, actually, we should say, with the first scene is of, of Hans is working in London and a senior vice president hears that he's moving to America and comes to say, oh, my God, I never wanted to, I work. I lived there once and I never wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. And you think this is such a funny opening, you know, and he feels a, contempt, and he for, feels the contempt I mean, for the guy for his American openness. And the well whole done, book is yeah. in some ways about that. But I, it's yeah. so lightly I, think, worn. I think you captured something, um, which is there are many things in this book. If we were to write it down, sound really gimmicky or yeah. schematic. Mm-hmm. For instance, exactly. one of the characters he meets in the Chelsea Hotel is a guy who walks around with wings angel and thinks wings. he's an angel and angel <laughs> wings. And if you were to, or the fact that the collapse of the marriage is reflected in 9-11, I mean, right. all of it seems too schematic, too easy, too gimmicky. Even cricket is this one mm-hmm. way he can achieve order in this disorderly mm-hmm. universe. Yeah. It's all too neat in a certain way. And yet somehow in the pages of the book, you never feel you it. Never, you never you feel never, You never see the blackboard with never, him like, right. writing and so, down. Yeah. And that's what I think is so interesting about this book because it's not... Why, I think and we should talk a little bit about why it succeeds as a novel. Because why it succeeds as a novel is not because the characters are so deep, mm-hmm. not because the plot is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, the normal criteria by which we judge a novel, in fact, this one does not so far exceed. It's really, I mean, and part of it, just to answer my own question, to me, part of it is the sentences yeah. are so this amazing. Sen- it really is the sentences. And that his writing is always 
Great. And maybe this would be a good moment to read a little bit of it. But I think that's part of why it succeeds and just moves beyond any of these normal criteria. Absolutely. I I keep thinking of various sentences from the book as I go through my day-to-day life. There are just moments where he describes sort of feeding – there are things he describes about marriage. There are things he describes about New York. Mm -hmm. And they come to mind long after you've read the book. But let me read a passage, a kind of crucial passage, where Hans is reflecting on when Rachel left him. She leaves him and goes back to England with their son. And um, I think I'm just going to read a, a, a long passage. You'll hear in the contrast of sentence length, some of the incredible sort of effectiveness of his prose. And what page is that? This is on page 128. It's about midway down the page. When the time came to stop her from leaving, I did not know what to think or wish for. Her husband, who was now an abandoner, a hole dweller, a leaver who had left her to fend for herself, as she said, who'd failed to provide her with the support and intimacy she needed, she complained, who was lacking some fundamental wherewithal, who no longer wanted her, who beneath his scrupulous marital motions was angry, whose sentiments had decayed into a mere sense of responsibility, a husband who, when she shouted, I don't need to be provided for, I'm a lawyer. I make $250,000 a year. I need to be loved. Had silently picked up the baby and smelled the baby's sweet hair and had taken the baby for a crawl in the hotel corridor and afterward washed the baby's filthy hands and soft, filthy knees and thought about what his wife had said and saw the truth in her words and an opening and decided to make another attempt at kindness and at 9 o'clock, with the baby finally drowsy in his cot, came with a full heart back to his wife to find her asleep as usual and beyond waking. In short, I fought off the impulse to tell Rachel to go fuck herself. I mean, that's just such a masterful transition of both kind of how the sentence operates, that long, long sentence and the short one, and then also the emotions. that There's so much tenderness and effort in that long sentence. And then there's this kind of curtailing, the sudden curtailing, and, and it really captures something. About I, also think it captures, I also think it captures the incoherence. Totally. What he's really gesturing toward is the impossibility of describing what, how a marriage fails or why. And right. so this back and forth, this contradiction, and this total, not even trying to make narrative sense out of it, is what I think is so brilliant about that and passage also, and about this yeah. and about his mode of description here in general, which is that he's not going to try to say the marriage fell apart because of X. Yeah. Right. And he never – is, you know right. the lull poem to speak of the woe that yes. is in marriage? I mean, yeah. just a devastating poem in which – but what's devastating about it is that he enters – Lowell enters into the consciousness of his wife as she experiences him returning to the bed drunk and having visited prostitutes yeah. or something horrible. Something and it's bad. his monstro- – it's his own – the poem constructs his own monstrosity through the eyes of his wife. At the same time, it's an example of it in some way because she sounds like a – Terrific Haridan. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. this is sort of – this is in a much softer, gooier, lovelier, and more empathetic way. sort of the same. He enters into the consciousness of his wife in this long sentence. He, he yeah. starts to provide her, her litany of complaints exactly. against him. And finally, we get her voice. I don't need to be provided for. I'm a lawyer. And all to bring all of that back around to fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> that's this is terrifically uh, – it's an incredible piece of writing, yeah. really. yeah. It really and, and throughout the book you get moments like this and, and it should be said too that it's not just how he arranges the sentences but what he says in them. There are a lot of kind of witticisms and apersues that you can have. And I, I couldn't help thinking too that he was really trying to 
I wondered to what degree this might be. This is a sort of a silly question, but I did find myself wondering to what degree this might be considered a man's book. Mm-hmm. You know, whether men. I re- really liked the book quite a lot, but I wondered whether men would respond to it even more profoundly. And of course, that's a question I can't ever answer and mm. never will. But uh, and, and because could I. <laughs> part of his what he's doing though that I think is so interesting, and one of the reasons I think it's not a man's book is that. He's trying to also delineate something about kind of modern masculinity, mm-hmm. it seemed to me. I mean, on the one hand, he describes himself as kind of having the the influence in his business that Henry Blodgett had, you know, at the point of, of Blodgett's apogee and, and influence. On the other hand, he's this kind of incredibly recessive character. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he's passive in the face of the world. He's passive in the face of his marriage. He's mm-hmm. got this. And it's in cricket that he finds action. But even there, he's somewhat – he's – takes second seat to Chuck, who's mm-hmm. the larger-than-life, yeah. colorful character. Um, and also, and his wife is so um, much of this recognizable type-A personality. She's like, yeah, he hopelessly brisk. She's like, <laughs> exactly. yes, um, very she's like this sort of... Political opinion. And, and right. you can sense, I mean, in a way, I thought she was quite unappealing, really. But she's, yeah. she's sort of dominating, and he's, as you say, kind of passive. And yeah. in a way, that part of the crisis is that he's not the man. And the fact yeah. that she has an affair with another man you know, is the really man. sort of a like the barbecue guy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, yeah. he has a one-night stand with another woman that's just sort of bleak and depressing. And, you know, he's well, sort of... Also, she whips him. So, right. Oh, I thought happened, vice versa. Right? Oh, vice versa. Oh, no, that's yeah. right. Of course, vice versa, right. But it's very... But she asks him to. It's an interesting passage. Right, right. But, yeah. I mean, in a way, it's not a... Um, it's not a book filled with like expressions of virility. Let me you know? let me ask you if I have this right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Joseph O'Neill is born in Ireland, raised in the Netherlands, educated in England, and lives in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yes, is that about right? In New York. Yes, yeah. exactly. So I, yeah. some of the tonality of the book comes from the character of Hans. Hans is there's a kind of you know, there was a kind of uh, tendency to reverie and kind of passivity that I think his wife, especially after 9-11, when her politics become inflamed, that she finds maddening. And that's part of the reasons, part of the reason why the marriage splits apart. But some of the tone of the book is, I think, governed by the fact that uh, O'Neill himself is neither fish nor fowl ethnically or national, you know, in terms of nationality, he seems to be sort of def- there are strains of the American idiom that come through this book unmistakably. You, you, you hear some the long sentences come from Roth. Some of the kind of wild divigations come from Melville. There's some bellow from Seize the Day. There's a lot in the mix that's American. But, but there's a sense of the transplant of the person who can't quite. I mean, this is a book about sort of cr- not only cricket not being able to find its place organically within American mm-hmm. culture, but sort of Proustian reverie not finding a, a home in a land in, inexorably defined by violence. I mean, mm-hmm. that violence is a big part of this book and, and mm-hmm. the suppression of violence and its occasional expression of violence. One of the first, the, the way in which he meets Chuck is they're in a, the middle of a cricket match out in you know, Staten Island, I think. And, and by the way, O'Neill has an incredible way with conjuring the far reaches of the five boroughs. I mean, for everyone who's written a book about hyper-educated, hyper-literate person who's written a book about New York City, and that just means lower Manhattan. I mean, this book reaches out. I mean, its mm-hmm. tentacles go into every borough. It's kind of Whitmanian that Whitman. way. I mean, yeah. really, really yeah. remarkable. Yeah. Its yeah. embrace is incredible. But anyways, he, they're, they're, at, they're at a cricket field. They're playing a cricket match, and there's a dispute, and I don't remember this all that vividly, but someone goes and gets a gun, essentially, mm-hmm. and, and walks to the middle of the field, and it's completely... And the dispute is about competition. The dispute is about the 
nature of the game and who's going to get what points, if I, I recall correctly. Right. Yeah, no, I think yeah. that's right. Yeah. And, and there's a moment when violent might, violence might break out. And, um, and Chuck delivers a speech, an impromptu speech about the nature of cricket that diffuses the situation. But what's interesting about the moment is it captures the kind of frustration and inaction that kind of characterizes Hans and characterizes the presence of violence in the book, which is always suppressed. And, and, and that has a very post 9-11 feel. There's this cataclysmic yeah. act of public violence. And all of a sudden, we, we go through life kind of yeah. catatonic and, and incapable of expressing a natural level of human and aggression. Over. And we become sort of zombie-like. I mean, there's some, there is a way in which we're meant to not we're meant to side with his wife in the marriage dispute and find him frustrating in his need to constantly spade over the past over and over and over again with no sense of like presence, action in the presence in a way. I mean, do, would did you find it, him? Yeah, I think that, well, I, I don't know about that, but I do think you're right about the um, constant calamity averted. This yeah. is a book mm-hmm. in which there's one character who you think has committed suicide and jumped off a building, but in fact has not jumped off a building. And Mm -hmm. what you're talking about over and over again is this violence that the person who doesn't get shot Mm -hmm. and the marriage that almost falls apart and doesn't fall apart. And I think that may account for some of the enormous popularity of this book, which is that it does in the end have an enormous amount of kind of redemption in it. Yeah. Um, We should say that there is is an act of violence that defines the book, which is the murder of Chuck, which we find out at the beginning. He's back in England. Hans is back in England. He gets a phone call from a very, Mm -hmm. from a New York Times reporter. And, And also that scene... Should we read that? Yeah, now, I think or you do? should read yeah. the scene. Can I jump in for one yeah. second before we read that? Which is, I think you're absolutely right, Steve and Katie, about the kind of violence averted in the book. And I think that's part of why O'Neill reminds me a bit of Sabald. And I didn't actually hear, I found there to be some American strains in this book, but I actually didn't find it to be that American, except for that kind of Whitmanian reach, the fact that he's willing to go and look in the... But I did hear a lot of Sabald, and, and Sabald, who I think is maybe a model in some sense for this, because yeah. again, stories of these repressed characters who have experienced trauma, and usually the Holocaust in that case, and the way that they deal with it is by this constant kind of um, it's almost like they're living in water a little mm-hmm. bit. They're incredibly observant on the one hand, but everything is muted or takes longer to happen or transpire or never quite but the, does. Re- the reason and, and so anyway, I think that I'm completely with you. Right. I'm completely yeah. with you. But the reason why I hesitate to say that there's no American. Oh, I don't voice think there's no. It, I'm not saying there's no. I just I no, no, hear. I know. But because because yeah. the tone it doesn't have is the sort of hyper precious lilting European right. male who comes to America Absolutely and finds not. it completely right. alienating. Right. And it, it seems and and the other interesting thing is he is a European mutt in America. He lives in America. Right. There's something like deeply America and deeply un-American about the book of the same time, which is hard right. to parse out. But. Yeah. And that's what I was going to get to, is just to say that there's something very hybrid about the book, and that's mm. part of what I liked, is that sense of hybridity, that it's not one thing or the other. And it's not hybrid in the way that Bellow was hybrid, for yeah, example. It's right. not the immigrant hybridity. No, it's this not at other all. Yeah. sort of affect. Anyway, but let's read the passage that... Now, I should say that this is – I'm going to make do as best as I can because this is this takes, this takes is an episode that takes place over two or three pages of the book, and I want to try to get through most of it without reading the whole thing. But to set it up, as he discovers over time, he's spending more and more time with Chuck. Hans is spending more and more time with Chuck. Chuck has this grandiose – he's a kind of Gatsby-esque figure. There's some people have kind of made reference to Nick Carraway and Gatsby kind of echoed in mm-hmm. Hans and Chuck. Chuck has a grand idea – about cricket in America that's hyper-entrepreneurial. It's, it's one of these things that you hear in, in, when it's in seed form and it just sounds ridiculously overblown. And then 10 years later, you find out that someone like Chuck is worth $2 billion. Or, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like, it's just really captures the spirit of crazy immigrant entrepreneurialism. And he follows Chuck around. And uh, it turns out that Chuck as a sidelight, sideline has a, a kind of 
we'll just call it sort of a gambling business for which he operates as kind of a bagman and collector, and he makes a little few extra bucks on the side. It's some game that I think was played back in the home country, and he's transplanted into the States. So anyways, uh, he follows Chuck on one of these trips. After 20 minutes, this is page 212, after 20 minutes, we came to a stop somewhere in Williamsburg. This shouldn't take long, Chuck said. He went briskly into the nearest building. I waited in the car. After 10 minutes, Chuck had not returned. I stepped outside and looked about me in that state of prepossession almost any unfamiliar New York place was capable of bringing about in me, even a place like this section of Metropolitan Avenue where trucks gasped and groaned past commercial buildings of no note. And I'll skip down a little bit more. He goes into a deli and then comes out. I was coming out of the deli when Abelsky, Abelsky is the Russian Jewish partner of Chuck. Do you feel as though this ever gets resolved? Who's who's the no. alpha and who's the beta in that part? Tell. Terrifically yeah. well done, right? Yeah. yeah. Chuck claims that he's partnered with this Russian Jewish guy only in order to get the credibility of being partnered right. with someone within the sort of Jewish community and a Jewish businessman because no one will take a Trinidadian seriously. But every time Abelsky has Hans's ear, he tells him about how Chuck is essentially an employee right. and a second fiddle. I was coming out of the deli when Abelsky in Judaic white shirt and black trousers waddled by. To be accurate, I saw a baseball bat first carried in a man's hand. Only then was I moved to recognize Abelsky. He went to the language school building, this is where Chuck has gone into, and pressed the doorbell. The door opened and Abelsky went in. Let's skip a little more. Chuck then goes in to follow this ominous sign of Abelsky with a baseball bat. Chuck was sitting behind the desk, rocking on a leather chair. He raised a hand in greeting. The office, a windowless box, was more or less destroyed. A filing cabinet had been upended, and its contents were strewn everywhere. A framed map of the United States lay on the floor, its glass in pieces. Somebody had smashed a potted plant against the photocopying machine. You got NutraSuite? Abelsky yelled out to no one that I could see. Gotta have NutraSuite. Chuck said, Hans, you remember Mike. <laughs> then there's a little bit more sort of uh, color... Uh, a toilet flushed, and moments later the flusher, a man in his 30s, came in. He had splashed water on his face, but there were traces of soil around his ears and in his hair, which was of the pale, almost colorless Russian variety. His blue shirt was filthy. You got NutraSuite, Abelsky repeated. And then skipping down a little more, Hans has ex exited the building. Now the meaning of what I'd seen, Chuck and Abelsky had terrorized some unfortunate, smashed up his office, shoved his face in the dirt of a flower pot, threatened him with worse, for all I knew, arrived as a pure nauseant. So anyhow, this is a moment where the, the feeling of suppressed violence that sort of pervades the book really comes to the surface. And to set up the sort of thematic significance of it, Chuck's insistence on cricket as a kind of a possible American sport isn't only entrepreneurial. It also is highly idealistic. He has this idea about cricket, which is that it's a place where it's kind of a I don't know, sort of a pure zone of gentlemanliness where people of diverse nationalities can come together and mutually acknowledging their sportsmanship, play by the rules, and certain things are cricket and certain things are not cricket. And he, he makes great hay out of that phrase. And to have it revealed to Hans towards the end of the book that Chuck, in fact, at some level is nothing but a petty mobster or is capable of acting like a petty mobster blows apart this whole kind of fantasy that he's developed about Chuck as the kind of zealous, you know, mm -hmm. idealistic uh, immigrant. And it's it's a heartbreaking passage in some ways. It is. I mean, I think one thing that, you know, the English major in me was asking myself as I read the book is, you know, why cricket? What is the role of cricket in this book? Why yeah. is so much loving attention spent describing, detailing what is what is the nature of Chuck's fantasy? And obviously part of it is O'Neill just writes beautifully about cricket and must have. But in the end, I, you know, I, I couldn't help feeling... Um, 
and again, not to get too weighty, that, that the whole role of cricket in the book was to kind of offer a critique of, you know, that in some ways the book was, because there's a lot of politics in the book, there's a really telling passage early on where he talks, Hans talks about the fact that you couldn't go to dinner parties now with getting without getting involved into these intense foreign policy conversations. And in fact, that's kind of the wedge that drives him and Rachel apart, yeah. that they feel differently about America and England and, and war and the role in the world. And I couldn't help reading the whole... Chuck's role in particular as a kind of um, site for asking questions about and offering a kind of critique of sort of Western liberalism as it's reeling from the after effects of 9-11 and not knowing how to act, right? Mm -hmm. That you could read it in that sense as here are these nations that believe in democracy and kind of the, and you know, England in particular in the idea of cricket and kind of an upheld moral order. But on the other hand, is there a kind of petty mobster we're protecting ourselves against the others in our and response it's, and it's you know, so to terrifically in terms of the war but none yeah. of that ever you're able to totally enjoy the book as a book about critic and i almost don't cricket and i almost don't want to even bring but, up my, this idea bring but it up though bring it up though because present. it's there it's totally there yeah. because first of all what was the means by which cricket came to all of these exactly. countries to sri lanka right. pakistan it was right. colonialism right. Empire. so you have colon- underneath this kind of crazy vision of cricket as this place in which total fairness reigns is the violence of colonialism exactly. and the violence Violence of mobster America, right. and it's and Hans's, the silence of those violences in some ways. Yeah, right? and, and it, exactly, and that's and that's the weird sort of. I mean, the sense of of a kind of a suppressed zombie-like energy, which I think is actually very defining of the last eight years. This kind of disbelief that it's like we've entered into some counterfactual nightmare where George Bush is our president instead of Al Gore, and we're living it out like a Twilight mm-hmm. Zone episode. Mm-hmm. And where I think there is a way in which we've zombied through it in a way. The mm-hmm. culture hasn't been especially fresh mm-hmm. uh, or or fertile or productive during it. And the, this book is a perfect representative of that. And there's a kind of a reckoning in the face of that zombiness. And, and there's a kind of looking in the face, finally, somewhat of, of the costs of suppressed violence and, and the sort of inexorability of the past. Like, you know, anyways, I'm gassing on now. But yeah, but uh, yeah, definitely. definitely. Katie, you've been silent for way too long. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I guess I'm having the response that Megan was just having, which is that I don't want to overanalyze this yeah. book and, like, kill it. And it sounds... Oh, we um, won't. It's unkillable. I, it's too I, good. I, even I you, even you Katie, no, can't I don't, kill this I agree. Book. <laughs> I don't want to kill it. But I feel like, again, what's so great about this book is that there are all these meanings that you can yes. impose and all these... Yeah. Of, but you why know, do we have to... Book, no, but here, let's... And I, and I sort of... I mean, I guess for me on the sentence level, and I think... What is so good about this book is that it operates on a lot of different levels yeah. um, no, and that it operates and that, as Megan was saying, you can just read it and the cricket passages and the, you know, for for its plot, for its story, for its character, for yeah. its. And so while and I'm not disagreeing with anything you've said, because I think it's all true. Yeah. And eloquent. But my resistance is only that what he does so beautifully is actually create a character and a sensibility and mm-hmm. a mood. And I guess. I don't want to beat it over the head. No, no, no. You know, the, the sort of political meanings and no, 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 of and course, of course. It's, cultural I think we all agree it's per- perfectly executed and there's no sense of, of, of yeah, that he's the, you know, I mean, another book it, it reminds me of, but... by the way, is, is another sort of country at war book, which is Mrs. Dalloway, mm. a little bit, mm-hmm. um, in the way that she integrates the political moment with the intensely personal mm-hmm. psychological reality of a character. Is this book flawless i mean we're making That's it out what I was to about be to ask, I, I mean what what are i know i know there are reservations in the room i can feel that there are some <laughs> reservations violence, in the room yeah. there are suppressed but yeah what what would be one's reservations about this book i mean i i have a few that i'll get to in a moment but um 
Katie, you thought it was perfect, didn't you? I I really love this book. And as I say, I mean, as you said, it's so far above the novels that most of us normally see. Um, But but if there – I mean, I guess if I would say the – you know, as I said before, you don't really – the wife is sort of a cartoonish. Yeah, the wife is um, a little the, weird. In a certain way, Chuck is sort of cartoonish. A little bit, um, yeah. These characters in and of themselves, even Hans, are not – they don't really feel like flesh and blood people exactly. Mm-hmm. And so – and in a way, what I would say is that he's – that doesn't matter for this book. And the plot is kind of silly, you know, with the murder and the – I mean, in a lot – and as I said, I started out with all the criteria by which we normally judge a novel, plot, character, et cetera, this book isn't great. Mm-hmm. Where it's great is the sentence and where it's great is the way in which he pulls it all together. Yeah, I think the structure is actually ingenious too. Yeah, yeah and it's the writing. And I mean, I don't know – I mean, to me what the mystery of this book is, is with its flaws as a conventional novel, because mm-hmm. I think it is flawed as a conventional novel, yeah. how is it that it does feel so perfect? Yeah. And I guess that to I me mean, is kind of interesting. I, you lose me a little bit in your argument only because I don't feel as though any great novel really is conventionally good in that sense. But we I talked mean, about Anna Karenina last time. And I mean, Anna Karenina, yeah. the characters are really characters. Yeah. Like we – those characters, as we discussed endlessly, are like – you know, yeah. deeply. Well, it's the drawn. best novel of all time, and this maybe isn't. But <laughs> you know, um, but but the, the question of how good it is, I think, is complicated because we're very obviously near to it. And the problem is, you know, you sort of get a lot of books; they get sent to you, they're novels, and there's a bell curve, right? And very rarely you get one that's just on that little tail end, that sort of tiny little artifactual tail end you mean of the as upper a end. Critic reading new novels. Yeah, and, you just right, right. rarely get a book that's anywhere near this good, and suddenly you're not comparing it to the hump of the bell curve, which it's just left behind completely. You're comparing it to genuinely enduring novels. And at that point, the standard has shifted so much that it's partially unfair because this novel hasn't been around for 50 years. And I do think in 50 years we'll know something about this novel that we don't know now. And I think, But I do think what we need to know about it is still clear now, which is that when I get to the end of The Great Gatsby, Moby Dick, or Anna Karenina, the act of being of herself throwing herself under the train, the act of the white whale bringing down the Pequod, Gatsby staring out at the green light or whatever it is, all of these things have a kind of they, – they have a kind of highly concentrated, completely undiffuse emotional power that defines them as – masterful works of art, as sort of life-changing works of art in, in a way. And, I, and again, to apply that standard to a book like this is only to complement it. It's, I think it's the best novel in English I've read in, in ye- really years. Um, and, but the question about this book is, is it too involved in the passivity and of its own character and the diffuseness, uh, diffuseness of its own mood that the story of Chuck, which I think has to be the central iconic story of, of cricket failing in a land of violence, uh, is that story, does that bring together a kind of uh, undiffuse fist of like literary whatness or yeah. something in a way that, that you, you know, you really are moved by having read this book. Yeah. I, I admire it enormously. I'm not sure this book moved me that much. And, 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 but yeah. I, I, yeah. I may be wrong. And in 50 years, we may understand the beginning of the 21st century as a period so defined by this exact mood and these exact circumstances and the failure of something like cricket or international law to keep us from violence that it may be a masterpiece. I, I just don't know now. I, I think there's something to what you're saying. I, I felt much the same way. I, 
I thought the first half of the book was just wonderful, and I read it in one big swoop. And yeah. then the last half, I wasn't quite as moved to pursue as avidly. And I was thinking a lot about this, and I haven't been able to identify it successfully. But for me, it does have to do with Chuck and the role of Chuck in the story, and a little bit with the fact that Rachel is a cipher. But Chuck also still felt a little bit like a cipher to me. And there's something about that scene, which is this, oh, the violence suppressed. But it's so anticlimactic. It's like the guy comes out and he has like a little dirt on his face. And it's kind of (laughs) like, dude, I mean, not that I want this guy to be like, it would be too obvious if he were all like beat up. But but it was a little bit. And and I was thinking about, and I had just read Gatsby right before this. And Gatsby, um, I think, is another model for this book. Absolutely. And Gatsby, what's fascinating about that book and that I had forgotten is Can we please do that? Yes, we're going to do it. But what's fascinating about Gatsby Gatsby is that Gatsby isn't in the book all that much, yeah. which I had forgotten. But what it's makes really you Buchanan. feel that that he is is that <clears throat> he loves Daisy. And there's something about the love for cricket, which is just slightly intellectualized. Yeah. That I think you need – I think See, I if you're going to feel do that, that way. I think it's not – I mean, you really feel it passive, but it was a little hard for me. There was just – I was like, well, then I need more of Rachel or mm-hmm. I need more of you this. Like I thought there well was a little more mother, and we haven't talked the about mother it. The mother I felt like when he talks about how cricket makes him feel like this – and I can't that quote it, but was there's the a part where he talks about how cricket makes right. him feel like this line back to the mothered self. Oh, my God. And that's he imagines, amazing which line. Which is a great yeah. line. Yeah. And he imagines his mother watching the cricket scenes. Yeah. And he thinks of how his wife wouldn't watch cricket. She was bored. Right. And in a way that I felt like part of the key to the psychology of this character yeah. is the mother. Yeah. And is yeah. and that, yeah. that part of it and that connection to cricket and what it meant to him for me, was incredibly immediate. Yes. And I guess I disagree that um, I with Steve. I feel like he has this, like, this is like a boy thing. But um, I don't really feel like the failure of cricket to transplant itself in America is, is really the center of the book. Wrong. And I understand intellectually that's very important to you. But Wrong. I just don't – I don't feel – I feel like there were a lot of centers to this book. Yeah. And I feel like – I mean, again, I keep being, like, relentlessly personal – but to go back to him him and what it meant to him, I guess I felt differently than you, which is I really understood that there's this disorderly moment. And he says oh. the spine, he says he's lost in this invertebrate time, I think yeah. is the quote, where the spine of his family is lost. Yeah. Oh, no, that there's this yeah. orderly thing and this yeah. game with rules and this sort of lure of that combined with this nostalgia, with his past, combined with what cricket meant to this sort of immigrant moving from place to place. Yeah. Um, on yeah. a very high financial level, we should say. Right. Katie, not, is, it, is, it know, just but... that, is it just that you're flummoxed by a book that's about more than just one person's <laughs> own pursuit of self? I no, mean, I am not flummoxed by it. I, I'm, the, I'm the one who started out saying what seemed perfect to me was the way in which he wove everything together. Yeah. And when I compare it to Mrs. Dalloway, yeah. I think Mrs. Dalloway is about more than Mrs. Dalloway. Yeah. Um, what I don't think is that you can separate the two totally. Yeah. And I yeah, don't no, think... I, I and I, and totally to me, yeah. the thing that is interesting, and I think... I mean, I've said this before, but I think Updike does it really well, uh, is the way the culture reverberates in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's yeah. what he's showing, the way this interplay between the two. Yeah. And I guess, like, to look at these larger themes, like we're in a Shakespeare class in 10th grade, is not as interesting to me nice. because I'm an anti-intellectual. I mean, but just, um, <laughs> but just to clarify what I was saying, I wasn't saying that Hans's relationship to cricket wasn't moving to me. I think that part of the book is really moving. And the mother section in particular, where that's where you get it because you, you've been feeling it. You've been feeling how it su- fills this hole and this need and it's sort of the – he has an emotional hole in the way that the city has a kind of wreck, yeah. wreckage hole. And and when you see him with the mother, you understand 
how cricket is it brings him back to a sense of origin again in this way it is also again a book about a hybrid a person who's moved from place to place but what i was saying though was that um chuck's relationship to cricket still was i didn't have that like if you think about gatsby and nick and 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 gatsby it's like part of their relationship part of what makes gatsby's role moving is his love for Daisy. And while I was totally interested in Chuck's love for cricket and I thought it was really well drawn, I wondered if you had like a slightly more, I felt like I needed another, I needed a scene like the scene with Gatsby and Daisy. Mm -hmm. Like I needed that with Rachel, which you you get at the end with the barbecue, but I I was like, no, I want the love scene. I think you're right. I think you're right. I want to answer, I think my passage I want to read answers Steve's critique of me. I mean, he actually answers it in the book. Um, And I'm going to read it. I have Marshall McLuhan right here. Um, What happens, however... the page Oh, it's on page 255. This is really the end. What happens, however, is that I'm the one who drifts to another sundown, to New York, to my mother. We were sailing on the Staten Island Ferry on a September day's end. The forward deck was crowded. There was much smiling, pointing, physical, intertwining, kissing. Everybody looked at the Statue of Liberty and at Ellis Island and Brooklyn Bridge. But finally, inevitably, everybody looked to Manhattan. The structures clustered at its tip made a warm, familiar crowd as their surfaces brightened ever more fiercely with sunlight. It was possible to imagine that vertical accumulations of humanity were gathering to greet our arrival. The day was darkening at the margins, but so what? The world was lighting up before us, its uprights putting me in mind, now that I'm adrift, of new pencils standing in attention in a Quran dash box belonging in the deep of my childhood. In particular, the purplish platoon of sticks that emerged by degrees from the reds and turning bluer and bluer and bluer faded out. A world concentrated most glamorously of all, it goes without saying, in the lilac acres of two amazingly high towers going up above all the others, on one of which, as the boat drew us nearer, the sun began to make a brilliantly yellow mess. To speculate about the meaning of such a moment would be a stained, suspect business. But there is, I think, no need to speculate. Factual assertions can be made. I can state that I wasn't the only person on that ferry who had seen a pink, watery sunset in his time, and I can state that I wasn't the only one of us to make out and accept an extraordinary promise in what we saw. The tall, approaching cape, a people risen in light, you only had to look at our faces, which makes me remember my mother. I remember how I turned and caught her. How could I have forgotten this until now? looking not at New York, but at me, and smiling. Mm-hmm. I think that that's lovely. I don't know that it underwrites your existence more than mine, <laughs> but, um, but I'll, I'll give you that. It's, it's lovely, but I think it's interesting that um, I share some of Rachel's frustrations with Hans by the end of this book, and those, I think, inevitably trace back to my frustrations with O'Neill. For having written a, what may be even a perfect book, but even the greatest books suffer from imperfection well they're not imperfection but they they're so themselves that they have to be annoyingly complete about the inner workings of a whale ship i mean they have you know you know anna karenina has to have these long tiresome passages about you like this russian politics i did i love them but they're but they're integral in the same way the tiresome qualities are part of what makes a a great person great And, and in this book i think at a certain point rachel probably wants to grab him and say enough with the 
Proustian reveries about your own mother, like like live somehow more fully live in, the, in, the in the present, yeah. and live in the now. And there's yeah. a sense in which, uh, in the last, th- I think, half to third of the book, the tendency to constantly go back into the past and kind of wax nostalgically and fully actually does become Except what tiresome. that passage was yeah. really about is here we are looking at this incredibly beautiful scene where he's almost showing off the gorgeousness of his writing yeah. with the sunset so beautifully done and the city and Manhattan and the skyline and everybody's watching it. And he's like, wait a minute, my mother's looking at me. Mm-hmm. And in a way what that's saying is – um, is a retreat back into the marriage, back into the personal, back into the human. Mm-hmm. Here's this grand scale, almost this like lushly, beautifully, passively Proustian described scene. And by going back to actually my mother's just looking at me. Right. It's another thing like the passage that Megan read where he goes to the fuck you, where he's drawing back yeah, and saying, here's this real story. Yeah. Of, and this is what matters. And I think that that's that he does but that do gesture though, over but, and over again is, in this but book. But isn't this another instance where the impeccable beauty of the writing covers up for an absence of powerful motivation? I mean, do you do you have Sometimes a sense? I feel do you have that. a sense? Yes. Uh, do you have yeah. a firm enough sense of why that marriage heals? No. Do you? And in that, let me ask my second that, question. I feel like you never have a sense of why marriage. Well, you love everything about this book, but that's fine. But 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 my second question is: for as beautiful as that description of Manhattan is, does that capture something about the essence of what this this book is in relation to the city and in relation to this odd European mutt's relationship I've, to America. I've, I sort of think it yeah. does it really. There's a yeah. kind of beauty, beauty and optimism to it that I don't entirely derive from the rest of yeah. the book. And, and and it's fine if something had happened in the book to bring him around to this moment of beauty and optimism. But I, 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 I something is still missing for me. I don't know. Just two things. Just I'm not sure that mo- moment is a moment of optimism, actually, because yeah. it's a moment he's rejecting. I think it's a moment of a kind of certain type of male aspirational longing you know and it's like he's he's figuring that through the description of the city and that whole thing that he says about the verticality of human mm-hmm. you know and it, it, that reminds me of the moviegoer or the sports or you know that kind mm-hmm. of character who like has this kind of dreamy longing for something but it prevents him from engaging with his real mm-hmm. life and i see that moment as he realizes that his mother was looking at him and then he turns to look at his son mm-hmm. who's in, in the present they're sort of on the so i don't know that it's optimism i think it's trying to characterize a I think it's a characterological moment. But that said, I do feel that there's – I have some of that reservation that you have. I can't put my finger on it. I don't know quite what it is. But there's something – I was underwhelmed at the end. But even that doesn't quite – it's not quite accurate because I admire the book. As we're talking about it, I see how much more (laughs) is working, how the pieces fit together. But there was just a little – the passivity left me restless. Yeah. That's all I can say. And, it left me restless. And, and you know? what I hope to do is is die and come back in 50 years in order to attend a 10th grade English class on this book, and then <laughs> yeah. I'll know exactly how I feel about it. But yeah. my sense is that is that I, I'm not sure, for as good as it is, I'm not sure I'll ever reread it. Yeah. Well, we should um, bring this to a close, but is there anything else to say? Or, or I guess that's a good moment. Well, to I guess I, I mean – I agree with you guys that it's not a perfect book. I think it's interesting that that word comes up. It's come up a number of different times I between use us. The word perfect, though. But I, no, I, and I, just, I don't yeah. think it's perfect. Yeah. But the fact that that that's the word that comes up is it perfect or isn't it perfect says something about the craft of this oh, book. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely, amazing. No, absolutely. And that you know whether or not it might almost be too perfect. Yeah, I mean, in a way, because I don't think perfection is the category by which I value it. I don't, I don't keep find perfection. Somebody keeps saying it. Yeah, yeah. But I do think 
you know, I would want to end on the note that we all kind of agree it's that everyone ex- should read it's this It's an book. extraordinary it's a wonderful book. book. People should yeah. read it. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's also, Without although we've talked a lot about yeah, it being a book about New York, I think it's also a book about many other things in that that it's not, um, it doesn't feel, as Steve was saying before, it doesn't have that kind of insular New York quality that, mm-hmm. that New York books can sometimes have. So not at just all. Just add no. on that. Thank you all for joining us. We will be discussing Bride's Head Revisited by Evelyn Waugh in our next audiobook club, so please come back for that. And thanks to Steve Metcalf and Katie Royfe. For Slate, I'm Megan O'Rourke.